Good morning once again. There was a newspaper columnist and also pastor. His name was George Crane. And he tells about a wife who came into his office one day. She was full of hatred and bitterness towards her husband. I want to get rid of him. But I don't just want to get rid of him. I want to hurt him as bad as I can hurt him before he's gone. Dr. Crane thought for a minute. I have just the plan for you, he said. Just the plan. If you just break up with him right now, he'll probably be glad to be rid of you too. Won't hurt him at all. Just the plan, though. Can you put on an act? Go home and pretend like you love him. When he gets home from work, you rub his feet. You do his laundry for him. You sweep the floor for him. You just do everything that he wants you to do. Just pretend like he's the best thing in the world. Convince him that you have undying love for him for two months. At the end of two months, drop the bomb. Tell him you want rid of him. It'll hurt him like nothing in the world. She smiled with revenge in her eyes. Beautiful, beautiful. Won't he ever be surprised? She did it with enthusiasm. Just acting, just as if she loved him like the best thing in the world. For two months, she showed him love, kindness. She listened to him. She gave things to him. She reinforced his thoughts and feelings. She shared with him. Day by day, Dr. Crane was waiting. They had an appointment. She was going to come back in his office in two months to finalize the divorce. But two months came, and she didn't come back. The Dr. Crane picks up the telephone. Are you all right? Everything's going right? Oh, yeah, everything's going great. Well, aren't you going to come in here so we can finalize your divorce papers? Divorce? A divorce? Never. I don't want a divorce. You know, I discovered, I did what you said, and I discovered I really love him. I discovered I really love him. Her actions changed her feelings. Oftentimes, the ability to love is established not so much on a fervent promise as on repeated deeds. Just in a couple of weeks, Christina and I will be celebrating our 11th wedding anniversary. And I uh, can't believe it's been nearly that long. Of course, just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Valentine's Day and, and had a very special celebration here at the church for that. It's a special time of year for many of us. Perhaps... Many of us are married. Some are single. Perhaps some have loved and lost. But I want to assure you today, my friends, no matter where you fit in this description, that there is someone who loves you with a love that never fails. We know this. We believe that God loves us. We teach that God loves us. We read in the Bible where it says that God is love. 
And yet, as we look around us, it might seem as though he has forgotten. Just like a marriage that is on the rocks. For many people today, their love relationship with God is on the rocks. They look around and they see evil. We see evil. We see war. We see pain. We see suffering. We see marriages falling apart. We see families falling apart. People hating one another, killing one another, hurting one another. And we wonder, how could a God of love, who has all the power in the universe, how could such a God allow this to continue and do nothing about it? And we say, either he is not all-powerful, or if he is all-powerful, He's not really that loving. And we reason thus in our human logic that God must either be evil or else he doesn't exist at all. But I want to propose to you a question. Could it be like the woman in this simple story, the wife who wanted out of her relationship with her husband? Could it be that many of us today just don't understand how deep God's love goes. We see the hurt, we feel the pain, and we suppose that God has rejected us, not realizing that he cares for each one of his creatures with a love that is deeper than our understanding. Could it be that if we waited for just a moment, if we let down our guard, that we might see a God that we have never imagined possible before? But how can we understand God's love? I've never seen God with my eyes. I can't say for sure that I've ever heard him with my ears. I can't say for sure that I've ever felt his arms physically around me like the arms of another human being, although I can imagine it many times. But how can we understand God's love from someone who is invisible, who is transcendent, who is above the things that happen in this world, or so it would seem. Well, there are many ways we can do that. I've seen so many times in my life God's love demonstrated to me through other human beings, other people who have a relationship with God. And though I may not see God with my eyes, I can see other people. And through my eyes I can, and my ears and my sense of touch and smell. I can, I can sense their love for me and through them can sense a glimpse of God's love. But it's hard because people today are fickle. Many can put on an act for a little while. And when people let you down, people that you've trusted with all of your heart, with all of your soul, those people let you down. It seems perhaps as if God himself has let you down. No, we can't put all of our trust in human love. We can get a little glimpse of God's love through others, but it's a faulty picture at best, because every human in this world is faulty, myself included. But there's another way, perhaps more tried and proven, if you will, because in this book that I hold in my hands, we find the stories of numerous people 
who have encountered God, who have encountered his love. Again, not perfect people, but people whose stories in a way are interpreted to us so that we can understand through their stories and their experiences something more of God's love. And yes, we have the very words of God written down in here, words that God spoke from a mountain, words that God communicated to his servants, words that Jesus spoke when he was here upon this earth. And through these words, my friends, through these promises, we can gain a special glimpse of God's love for us. But I want to go back to the stories. Because there's a special story in the Bible, I, I believe, that illustrates the heart of God's love. There was an ancient king of Israel by the name of King David, perhaps the best known, perhaps the very greatest king ever in the history of Israel. Acts chapter 13, 22 has this to say of David. God, speaking of David, says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. A man after God's own heart. Now, if you understand anything about this man, David, you understand that his life was far from perfect. We have recorded in sordid detail the history of his sin with Bathsheba and going on to commit the sin of murder to cover up his sin of adultery. When the prophet Nathan came to David and told him a story, a story of a poor man with a sheep, and a rich man who stole that poor man's sheep. David became so angry, he declared unwittingly his own sentence. That man shall die, he says, and shall restore fourfold for the sheep that he has taken. Well, God said, David, I'm not going to make you die, but you're going to have to restore fourfold. And four of David's sons would perish as a result of David's sin. Now, God forgave David. David repented, and I believe this is one of the characteristics, one of the reasons why God says that David is a man after my own heart. We find his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And God forgave him as David prayed. But still the consequences of his actions he had to face. That first son that was born, that son that was the product of their adultery, died in infancy. David poured out his heart, prayer to God, before that son died. After this situation took place, it seemed that David, something broke inside of David. He couldn't discipline his family the way a father ought to discipline his family. His sons grew up shiftless, undisciplined, spoiled. Worse than spoiled. Criminals. Amnon committed the sin of incest with his sister. Incestuous rape. David did nothing. After a while, his brother, or I should say Tamar's uh, full brother, his half-brother, Absalom, realizing that justice would never be brought against Amnon, murdered his brother Amnon and fled. 
David, knowing that something would have to be done, he couldn't tolerate murder in his own family, banished Absalom from his court. Through a long story, the intercession of Joab and others, Absalom was finally brought back to Jerusalem. But still, David said, you're not going to see my face. David saw Absalom as a murderer, which he was. But Absalom was more than that. Absalom was a handsome and popular prince. And David, as he was getting older, was getting less and less capable of running an efficient government. So picture this here. You have a handsome, popular prince who is estranged from his father, but living in royal luxury in the capital city. You have the father who is getting to be a little bit out of touch with what's happening in the government. And Absalom's taking full advantage of it. It says that he would sit there in the city gates. If you turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, you find the story there. 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verses 4 and 5. Absalom would sit there in the city gates and he would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me and then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to draw a bow, uh, came came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Slowly, subtly, David's influence was being eroded and an insurrection was brewing right under his nose and he didn't realize it. In fact, he didn't even realize it until Absalom slipped away to Hebron and had himself proclaimed king. And the message came back to David. Your son has proclaimed himself king. And David knew there would be civil war. His heart broke. To think that this son of his, this one who had grown up in his own household, should declare war against him, should try to depose his own father from the throne. It broke his heart. And he looked out of the city of Jerusalem and he said, I do not want to see this city bathed in blood. So he took everyone who was loyal to him, the few, I should say, who were loyal to him, and fled. Absalom came, realized that his father had fled, and took over the city and went about setting himself up as king. And the plot continues. Finally, to make a long story short, David knew that war was inevitable. He marshals his armies. He's not even in Jerusalem now, but in the city where they were, he marshals his armies, and they go out to meet Absalom and the armies of Israel in battle. But as they go out, Second Samuel 18 and verse 5, you find these beautiful, pathetic words of David. He says to his armies, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Go out here. It's as if he's saying, go out here and fight against Absalom, but, but be nice to him. Be nice to him. Don't hurt him if you can. 
Well, a great battle ensued. They were in a wooded area, and you can imagine fighting in the woods and running around trees and running into trees, and, and, and uh, 20,000 people died. More people died because of the trees than even died because of the, because of the battle there, because of the, uh, of the sword. 20,000 lives were lost. Absalom was fleeing on his animal, on his donkey, and, and uh, he runs under a tree, and his head gets caught in the branches of a tree. And one of David's men finds Absalom there, hanging by his head, by his hair, from a tree. Goes to tell the commander of the army, and Joab is done by this time. Joab has done has, has had favor after favor after favor for Absalom. He's done with Absalom, and he goes and uh, puts him out of his misery, as it were. All that is to say, a long, long story, is to bring us to this point where the armies of Israel are marching victoriously back to David. David didn't even go out. He wanted to, but he didn't go out this time with his armies. He knew it would be a suicide mission to go out, and his armies convinced him, don't, don't go, don't go. So the armies are coming back victorious to tell David, your kingdom is restored to you. And he has only one question. How is Absalom? How is Absalom? Is he okay? My son, is he okay? And he hears the words, may the enemies of your Lord be, be as that man is. In other words, he's dead. Aren't you glad he's dead? And when he hears the words that his son Absalom is dead, he bursts into tears. And that's the scripture reading that I read a few moments ago. 2 Samuel 18 and verse 33. 2 Samuel 18 and verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so it was that the strangest day of victory that an army ever celebrated as the victorious army snuck back into the city as if they had been defeated because the king was weeping for his son. Of course, Joab goes and has some harsh words with the king there in 2 Samuel 19. Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning. In verse 5, listen to these words of Joab. Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters. Verse 6, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. You love your enemies. I perceive, he goes on, he's angry with the king. I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that would have pleased you well. You only care about your son. Now, Joab was right. David needed to be encouraging his armies. There's no way that David could have been restored to his throne if Absalom had remained alive. The insurrection, the rebellion, would have continued. Joab was right. But I have to wonder, my friends, I have to wonder if David was also right at some level. Is there something in these words of David, these words of grief, is there something that gives us a glimpse 
into the heart of God. Is it possible that despite all of David's failings, despite all of his weakness and everything else that we see at this moment, perhaps the lowest moment of his life, is it possible that this pain and agony in the heart of David reflects the pain and agony in the heart of the king of the universe as he sees his sons and his daughters suffering and dying as a result of sin? And sin is the result of our own choice, my friends. We deserve what we get. And yet his heart is breaking in agony over his rebellious creatures. Adam and Eve were created perfect in the Garden of Eden. but They chose to rebel against God. They chose to cast their lot in with Lucifer. How much would their hearts have ached to watch their oldest son become a murderer? Cain, killing his brother Abel. How much would they have reproached themselves for their sin? My friends, every man, every woman, every child born into this world is a child of God, formed in God's image, created for a special purpose. How many of us, like Absalom, have spent our energies trying to boost ourselves up and in the process, cutting down our brothers and sisters. How many, if possible, would pull God from his throne if by doing so they could boost themselves to a higher place, to a higher position? And yet Christ came to this world the exact opposite of self-exaltation. It says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Coming down into this dark world to suffer the consequences of sin, our sin, our rebellion. My friends, this is a picture of the heart and the love of God. David said, or Joab said to David, you love your enemies. But Jesus taught his disciples to love their enemies. And Jesus himself modeled this in the most unimaginable way, by loving us who are his enemies. As it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like the story I told in the beginning, there's many people in this world who've come to doubt their relationship with God, to doubt whether God can really be a God of love, whether God really loves them. There are many people who just as soon file for divorce with God, blaming God for the evil that happens in this world. But imagine this. What if we realize this evil isn't his fault at all? What if we realize that God stands heartbroken at this evil, more so than David, standing heartbroken at the death of his son. 
Like the loving father in that beautiful parable Jesus told, God stands ready and waiting to welcome the sinner home. Not the good sinner. Not the the, the good people, the people who've always served him, the people who've always done everything right. I'm talking about the one who has shamed him, the one who has dishonored him, like Absalom, the one who has rebelled against him, who has tried to pull him from his throne. Yes, the one who has hurt and abused him, the one who has hurt and abused his other children. That's the sinner that God wants to welcome home. My friend, if you are that one, come to him. Before it's too late, give yourself to him. Confess your sin. All he wants to do is to love you. And in loving that loving relationship, he wants to restore you back to himself, to restore you to the point where you stop hurting others and stop hurting him and restore that perfect love that he's wanted to have all along. And he wants it so bad that he died to get that back. Yes, It's true that if you resist, if you resist every call of grace like Absalom, you may find the chains of rebellion fastened so tightly that you no longer have a desire to return. But I can assure you of this. God loves you. And even after sin and all who cling to it are destroyed, the heart of God yearns for those whom he could not save. Yes, perhaps I'm sure, even Lucifer himself, forever and through all eternity, there will be a hole in his heart for those who wouldn't return to him. May he never say to you or to me, my son, my son, if only I had died in your place. Because he did. My friends, this is the outrageous, outrageous love of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we can't even imagine this kind of love. That you would love people who hate you, love people who are trying to pull you from your throne, love people who are trying to hurt your children. Lord, teach us to love Lord, help us to stop fighting against you. For we give ourselves here and now today, fully and completely, to your love, to be transformed. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you've poured out your life. You have died in our place so that we can live with you. May we accept this now as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.